Let's pray, and uh, we're going to cover uh, Colossians 1, 20 through 23 this evening. So, Father, thank you again for uh, the time that we have together. I thank you for these ladies. Father, I thank you especially that um, they are committed to want to know truth. I thank you that um, there, it is their desire to study your word so that they might grow in understanding and, and love for you, Father. I do pray for those, many that are not with us tonight, that you would encourage those that need to be encouraged and those who are sick, that you would raise them up. And, uh, Father, that you would just encourage us uh, in this time in your word, especially in this precious portion of uh, First Col- or Colossians, the first chapter. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the songs that uh, we often sing, at least in most churches, is Amazing Grace. And we don't not only sing it in church, we sing it a lot. I've been at sporting events where it's sung and funerals and other events. But many times I've wondered if we as God's children really think about what we're singing when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I don't know if you know much about the history of that song, but John Newton, who wrote that song, recalls uh, regarding his own life that it was about the age of 11 years of age that he realized um, really what a wretch he was. Um, He would go into Africa and uh, get natives from West Africa and sell them into slavery, and his life was really one of great wickedness. And about the age of 23... Uh, through God's providence, John Newton uh, became a Christian. And so from the age of 23 until he died at the age of 82, he said he never ceased to marvel at the grace of God that saved a wretch like him. He never got over the fact that God took him from being rotten to the core to being reconciled to Christ. My dear friend, Have you gotten over this precious fact? I trust that you haven't. I trust that you will never get over the fact that you have been saved by this amazing grace. And I don't know about you, but to me, this portion of God's word is like a spiritual B12 shot. And quite frankly, I need a spiritual B12 shot tonight because um, this should leave us tonight going out those doors Uh, with an attitude of gratitude and joy when we contemplate the amazing fact that God saved wretches like us. Ladies, we have come from rags to riches, from being rotten to being reconciled. So uh, let's read the text together, and I'll give you an outline. Colossians 1, 20 through 23. Notice what Paul says. By him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies your mind by wicked works, yet now is he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now, as we consider this wonderful act of the reconciling work work of Christ, reconciliation work of Christ, that isn't right wording, is it? 
as we consider this wonderful reconciliation, our outline is going to be um, this. First of all, how are we reconciled? Verses 20a and 22a. Who is reconciled? Verse 21. Why are we reconciled? Verse 22b. And then what is the result of being reconciled? Verse 23. And I'll go over each one of these as we go through the study tonight. Now, ladies, we were here last week and we looked at that Paul had written eight characteristics about the supremacy of Christ. And we learned that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things. He's before all things. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And he is complete because all fullness dwells in him. And now Paul shifts from talking about the supremacy of Christ to his work of reconciliation on the cross. Now, ladies, the person that we looked at last week, that Christ who... who possess those eight characteristics, that one is quite able to reconcile us. The one that Paul has just described does reconcile us, and that is a very humbling fact. And so the first question we want to consider is, how are we reconciled? How are you and I reconciled to God? Notice what Paul says in verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, By him, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, since we're going to be talking about reconciliation this evening, I wanted to define what the word reconcile means. Some of you may not quite understand that. The word reconcile actually means to change or exchange from one condition to another. And it's a change that is thorough. It is complete. Ladies, when God saved you, he completely altered your life and adjusted it to a required standard, which is his standard, his holiness. In fact, Paul writes about this in Romans 5, 10 and 11. He says we were enemies. Once we're enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we have been saved through his life. And not only that, but rejoice in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received reconciliation. In fact, in the sister epistle, we've often talked about Ephesians and the fact that it is the sister epistle of Colossians. And Paul talks about the work of reconciliation there. In Ephesians 2, uh, 14, he says this, He is our peace who has made both one, he's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, so that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And ladies, this amazing story of reconciliation, you know, it was foretold by Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet prophesies in Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are 
healed. Now, when we think about reconciliation, if I were to say, you know, I need to be reconciled to one of you, you and I have odds at each other, with each other. And we would look at that in the human realm and say, well, you and I need to make peace with each other. We need to uh, work out our differences so we can be reconciled and we can be at peace. But when we think about being reconciled to God, it's very different. God does not need to be reconciled to you and I. God is not the offender. You and I are the offender. And so Paul uses that term. If you look very carefully, he says, by him to reconcile all things to who? Himself. Because, ladies, we're the ones that need to be reconciled to God. God does not need to be reconciled to us one man put it very well he said this in reconciliation the sinner stands before god as an enemy but becomes his friend and ladies i like that that's an encouraging statement now if you look at verse 20 paul makes it clear how we are reconciled how did you make peace with god well notice what paul says Through the blood of the cross. And we're going to see in verse 22, he mentions that it's through his flesh, through his death. And ladies, the two go together. You and I have been reconciled by Jesus's blood that was shed on the cross. And that blood was shed from what? His body. He had to have a body that died. There had to be a price paid for your reconciliation, and it had to be a blood sacrifice. Now, the mentioning of blood in this verse indicates it was a violent death because in the Old Testament, when they would make a sacrifice for the atonement for the sins of the children of Israel, they would take an animal, and they didn't beat it to death, and they didn't starve it to death, but what they did was they slit its throat and let the blood come out, and the blood was an atonement for the sins of the people. And so that's why Paul mentions here that it's through the blood of Christ, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so this was just a symbol. What they did in the Old Testament was a symbol of what was to come, which was Christ, who was the Passover lamb that would shed his blood once for all on the cross. In fact, Paul mentions this in Hebrews 13:11. He says, "The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate." And then in Hebrews 9:12, Paul writes again, "Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For us. And ladies, we know that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You cannot be reconciled to God without the shed blood of Christ. And this to me is a, a really humbling fact that Christ would shed his blood on the cross um, for my sins, for your sins. Now, you might say, well, why does Paul mention this? This is very important because. This was not taught by the false teachers. The false teachers were coming into the church at Colossae and were telling them that reconciliation was not made by the blood of the cross or by Jesus's body, but by angelic mediators. 
Jesus' blood was not enough. They said Christ was not sufficient enough to save them. And ladies, it really reminds me of some religions today that teach that you have to do all these works, certain works, uh, and then they throw Christ into the picture, but he alone is not enough for salvation. In fact, when Grace and I were gone this last weekend in Wyoming, there was a young girl that the Lord was calling to salvation, and I got an opportunity to talk to her one evening, and uh, she said, well, what do I need to do to be saved? I just got to get perfect first. And I said, no, you don't got to get perfect first. You're a sinner, and Christ is your Savior. You're never going to be perfect in to get saved but you know there are some religions out there that teach that you've got to do all these works and you've got to attain all this self-righteousness and then god will save you but ladies that is nothing but anathema which is cursed according to paul and what he says in galatians anybody that teaches another gospel is cursed and certainly a gospel that that is by works now it's not by chance that paul mentions we have peace through this reconciliation again Remember what he's combating, because that is in contrast to the turmoil that false teaching brings to one's life. Ladies, think about it. If you try to attain reconciliation to God by your works, it will frustrate you to death (laughs) because you can never work enough for your salvation. And so it doesn't bring peace, does it? It brings turmoil. It brings agitation. You can never be good enough. But Paul said when we're reconciled through the blood of Jesus on the cross, it brings peace. We don't have to work our way into heaven. Now, the idea of peace here means to bind together to harmonize. Ladies, the Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross, bound us who are sinful women to a holy God. He's brought us together. Christ was the bridge to that gap. And so now we have peace with our creator, the guy we looked at last week. Isn't that great? It's incredible. Now, what does Paul mean when he says to reconcile all things to himself? Does this mean everyone's going to be saved? Well, some people actually teach that. They're called universalists. They believe that everybody is going to be saved. But, ladies, that is contrary to the rest of the scripture. Because even Jesus says, hard is the way that leads to eternal life, and few that be there go there, right? So we know that that is not true. But a passage, you don't have to turn there, that will help you understand what Paul is saying when he says reconciling all things to himself, things in heaven, things in earth. A passage you probably are all pretty familiar with is Philippians 2, where Paul talks about on that day, every at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every name will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. And so Paul's talking in Colossians, and he is talking in Philippians. He's saying the same thing. One day, everybody will bow. In heaven, earth, and under the earth. One day, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be saved. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. Because, ladies, you either have a chance to bow in this life, or you have a chance to bow 
right there when you go to the judgment seat of Christ and then be cast into eternal hell when he says, I never knew you. And I don't know about you, but I would rather bow in this life uh, than to wait to that day. But that is what Paul is saying. He will reconcile all things to himself. At that time, everyone will stand before him, as Paul says in Philippians, and they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They may not acknowledge him now in this life, but they will when they stand before him, before he casts them into the lake of fire. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul mentions twice that this reconciliation is by him. And again, this is for emphasis for the readers uh, because they did, the Gnostics did not teach that. They did not believe that you could be reconciled by Christ alone. So the second question then we want to consider is who is reconciled? Who is reconciled? Look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So who's reconciled? Those who were alienated and enemies in their mind by wicked works. Now, what does it mean to be alienated? Well, it means we were once estranged. We were cut off from God. We were separated. In fact, being alienated is a powerful word which indicates a persistent and permanent condition that you were in before you came to Christ. Now, ladies, that describes you and that describes me before salvation. I know before the Lord saved me, um, I was pretty estranged from God and very persistent in my sin and rebellious. And that describes our life before Christ. And Paul says we're not, we were not only alienated and cut off, but notice what else he says. Paul says we were enemies. We were hateful. We were hostile in our mind by wicked works. What does this mean? It means we were hostile in our heart with evil deeds. And ladies, notice this enmity and alienation from God begins in the mind, and then it manifests itself by what? Wicked works. Kind of like that guy in Las Vegas. He reminds me of the guy that, you know, plotted evil in his bed at night, and then the next day he carried it out and killed, what, up to 60 people now. That's that, that alienation from God. It begins in the mind, and then it acts itself out in our wicked works. You know, it's like the psalmist put in Psalm 10:4: the wicked is proud does not seek God, God is not in any of his thoughts. Ladies, that describes you before salvation. You weren't seeking God. He wasn't even in your thoughts. In fact, Paul is clear in Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, to those who are defiled is nothing pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. And ladies, that describes us before salvation In fact, Paul tells us in the sister epistle that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Ladies, that was us before Christ. But but thanks be to God, the but thanks be to God, the Colossian believers and you and I 
were not left in that state. And I am so thankful because now we have been reconciled. And as Paul puts it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man's in Christ, what? He's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we can say praise God for that. Well, Paul again reiterates in verse 22a how he reconciled us along with why he reconciled us. Look at verse 22. He says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So we've already seen we were reconciled by the blood of Christ, but we are also reconciled by the body of his flesh through death. And ladies, there is a reason that Paul combines these two, the blood and the body. Now, think very carefully. Why is he doing that? Why is he combining the blood in verse 20 and his body in verse 22? Well, if you can recall back to our first lesson, the Gnostics did not believe, you know, that Christ actually had a human body that was not the body that was sacrificed. And so Paul is emphasizing that it was the actual human body of Christ that was involved. And again, this would be in contrast to what the Gnostics taught. They denied Christ's humanity. They taught that reconciliation could be accomplished by other spiritual beings like angels. And Paul says, no, (laughs) we can only be reconciled by Christ, the blood of the lamb. In fact, um, John writes about this in his epistle in first John. He writes to the church at Ephesus who was also dealing with the same heresy of Gnosticism. And he warns the church at Ephesus. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Listen to what he says. Here's how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in the body, is of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh is not of God. It's a spirit of antichrist, he says. And he says, you've heard it's coming and it's now in the world. Ladies, this is very serious because this goes on in some churches today. And Paul would say, these people that teach this stuff are antichrist. They are against him. And there are many cults and many false teachers that are teaching the same thing today. In fact, the day I was working on this lesson... I was listening to a message, not very long of it, maybe 15 minutes, a a girl I was counseling in Texas, and she wanted to visit a certain church, and she said, would you be willing to listen to this guy? And I said, sure, send me the link. And honestly, I could only get through 15 minutes of it, and I turned it off. And uh, I wrote her an email, and I said, I would not go back to that church. I said, not only is that guy a heretic, but what he was saying, he was giving in an angry tone. And, ladies, we have to be so careful that we measure everything that we hear by Scripture. And if it doesn't line up to Scripture, then we need to not listen to it. In fact, Jesus gives a warning in Mark 4:24. He says, take heed what you hear. <laughs> Take heed what you hear. Do you do that? We should not entertain those types of teaching. Well, we now answer the third question, which is the why question. Why are we reconciled or why have we been reconciled? And according to this verse, there are three answers to the why question in this verse. First of all, 
We have been reconciled so that we might be holy. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word holy means to be cleansed from all sin and worldly defilement and to be separated entirely to God and his service. Ladies, you have been saved. You have been reconciled by the blood of Christ through his death so that you would be presented before God free from worldliness and dedicated to him and his service. We're called to be holy. In fact, Peter says in his epistle, we are to be holy as he's holy. Why? Because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. In fact, it's interesting, according to Titus 2, do you know one of the qualities an older woman is to have before she teaches a young woman? She's to be holy. And the Greek word there is is she is to have behavior that is a priestess. And so that's a high calling, isn't it? But all of God's children We have been saved to be holy. He's called us to be holy. The second reason that we've been saved or reconciled, according to what Paul says here, is so that we might be blameless, or your translation might say unblameable. What does this mean? This means to not have any blemish of any kind. Now, it's not talking about blemishes on your face. It's talking about a different kind of blemish. But when an animal in the Old Testament was sacrificed... It had to be without blemish. Any animal that had a defect on it could not be used as an atonement for the people's sins. And ladies, this is a word that we would do well to take heed to because you and I also are to be without blemish, without fault. In fact, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2.14 that we're to do everything without murmuring and complaining so that we can be blameless blameless before others and you know what's hap- what happens is when we're not living our lives without blemish or not being blameless whether it's our speech or our actions or even our thoughts then what happens is we fail to shine as lights in a dark world and ladies we certainly do not please the one who <clears throat> reconciled us with his blood Well, the third reason for our reconciliation, notice what Paul says, is that we would be above reproach or unreprovable. Now, what does this mean? This means to be completely free from accusation, completely free from accusation. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. I know that's a qualification of a deacon and an elder, right? They're the ones that are supposed to be above reproach. I thought it was just for those guys. No, Paul makes it very clear right here that every one of us in this room who has been reconciled, we too are to also live lives above reproach. In fact, if you'll notice what he says here, he says he makes it clear that it's in his sight or in his presence. Ladies, the idea is that we are directly in front of his sight. Do you know right now God is has a searching, penetrating gaze into your heart? He knows if you're living above reproach. He knows if you're without fault. He knows if you're living holy. He's not blind to that. And that's why Paul says in his sight, he is seeing all of this. Now, All of these qualities, I want to make this very clear, all of these qualities are required of us as reconciled believers, and they are proof that we are redeemed, and we are to continue to grow in these. We are to continually being sanctified in these. However, 
<clears throat> Did you know that right now you have positional righteousness because of Christ's work on the cross? Do you know right now as God is viewing you, right now as he's viewing you, he is viewing you as robed in the righteousness of Christ? Is that amazing? Do you know right now he sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach? <laughs> and I don't know about you, but... With the last few days I've had, that's an amazing and humbling thought to me. That right now, Jesus Christ sees me. God sees me in Christ's righteousness. That is amazing. In fact, the songwriter put it well. When he will come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. So ladies, even though we are to pursue those things holy, above reproach, without blemish, right now Christ sees us as that. It's like Jew said in his doxology, now to him is able to keep you stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our savior, the only wise God be glory and dominion both now and forever. Amen. And I could say amen to that. Because ladies, that's how he sees us. Now, is this not an amazing truth that God would take you who were once alienated, wicked in your mind, and make you a friend of his? You were once an enemy, and now he presents you as unblameable and unreprovable in his sight? That's amazing. Well, we've come to our last question that Paul answers for us, and that is, what is the result of being reconciled? Maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, Susan, <clears throat> how do I know I've been reconciled? How do I know I'm really saved? Well, Paul's going to give one reason or one way in which you know that you might be saved. Now, I want to say this. The scripture has a lot of tests that we can look at. I know First John has 20 at least, and James has several others. But scripture gives many validations of how we can know for sure we're a, we're a believer. But Paul gives one that I think is vitally important. Notice what he says in verse 23. How can I know I'm reconciled? If I continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and I'm not moved away from the hope of the gospel which I've heard, Paul says, which was preached to every creature that is under heaven, of which I, Paul, am made a minister. You know what Paul is saying? He is clear, very clear. Those who have truly been reconciled through the blood of Jesus will persevere to the end. In fact, he describes it as continuing in the faith, grounded, steadfast, and not moving away from the gospel. Ladies, if there is a message for our age, it is this. Genuine believers do not apostatize. They don't. In fact, we're living in the age of apostasy, and it's happening at an alarming rate. I was just in a, a conference a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to some friends of mine, and uh, we, Debbie and I had dinner with them, and I had been to their church maybe 10 years ago, and they told Debbie and I the sad story of the pastor's wife. She's now left her husband, her six children, and she's apostatized from the faith, and she's living a life of debauchery. Ladies, it's happening. It's really true. I almost hear of someone almost weekly, either a pastor, a pastor's wife, somebody I know that is defecting from the faith. 
We live in the age of apostasy, and there is an alarming increase in those who once professed Christ, but now they're denying the very Christ they professed. My friend, they were never redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Paul says, we will continue if we're genuine in the faith. In fact, Paul says we were reconciled if we continue in the faith. In fact, the word continue means to persist, to stay with the stuff, <laughs> to adhere to it. In fact, the word if here is in the idea of assuming that you will continue in the faith. In fact, again, John writes the same thing to those that were being affected by this Gnostic heresy in First John. He says, they went out from us, for they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest. They were never of us. These guys were never of us. They heard the false teachers. They adopted the false teaching, and they left the faith. They got out. Ladies, genuine believers persevere. They do, and they do it by being grounded and steadfast. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word grounded means to be firmly established upon the true foundation. It's like the building that we looked at when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house on the sand. And we saw then that the wise man who built his house on a rock, it was a solid foundation. And so when the trials of life come, he stands firm. His house does not fall. He's grounded. He's settled, which means he's established. He's immovable. Nothing can get him off his pins and needles. Ladies, genuine believers don't constantly shift in their belief about God. They're not like the double-minded man in James when a trial comes his way. And James says, you know, you're, you're kind of like the sea. You kind of make you sick wave after wave. One minute you trust God and the next minute you don't. One minute you believe God who is who he is and the next minute you don't. And James says that man will not receive anything from the Lord. And the, the bigger context there, that man's not even redeemed. Not even redeemed. My friend, genuine believers remain steadfast in the faith. As Paul says, we remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing our labors not in vain in the Lord. Also, I think it's really interesting. This word grounded implies the foundation that we're supported by suggests that there's an inward strength that we possess that causes us to remain steadfast. And ladies, you know what that inward strength is? Strength is that's the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And so that to me is very encouraging because I know it's not Susan Joy Heck that remains steadfast. It's God the Holy Spirit within her that is going to help her with that inward strength to remain steadfast. Now, ladies, Paul is not the only one that writes about this. The writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. He says, we are God's children if we hold fast to the end. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, we are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our faith steadfast to the end. Well, Paul says here, not only are we grounded and settled, but Paul describes those who are reconciled as not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. Very similar to what he's saying. We don't move away to another place. We stay there. And ladies, this is a very important point that Paul makes because of the dangerous heresy that was creeping into the Colossian church. He's saying, listen, if you accept the heresy of Gnosticism, and ladies, I would say this to you this evening, if you accept any false teaching, <laughs> you will certainly move away from the hope of the gospel. You will slip away. 
And ladies, there's a warning for all of us. I, again, I cannot encourage you enough. Um, be examining what you hear in light of what God's word says. In fact, even just today, I got an email from somebody. It was very disheartening. And I said, I'm sorry, I cannot compromise scripture. I will not compromise scripture. And ladies, we need to be examining what we hear, what we listen to in light of what God's word says. Because so many things are creeping into our church today and they might look good and they might sound good. but they are damaging God's people. And I see it all the time when I travel. I see women who are being damaged because they're not hearing the word of the truth of the gospel. And I want to encourage you, be like the Berean believers, you know, uh, do your Bible study, Stir, search and study to see if the things that you read and hear match up with the word of God. Well, Paul makes it clear in this verse that the gospel was something they had heard. We've already known, heard about that in our first lesson. Epaphras was the one who brought the gospel message to them. The gospel was preached to them just like the gospel was preached to you. As Paul says, how will you hear without a preacher? Someone had to herald the message to the, message to the Colossian believers, and ladies, someone had to herald the message of the gospel to you. And Paul calls it the hope of the gospel. And my friend, it is a message of hope, right? To those that we evangelize. In fact, the word hope means to anticipate with pleasure. And ladies, if you don't have a longing for heaven tonight, something's amiss. I mean, that is our hope, right? In fact, Pam told me today it's going to be any minute, right, Pam? She told me it's going to be any time now. She always says that, but she says it's really now going to be any time. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping she's right. But uh, if you don't have a longing for heaven Something's wrong. Paul calls it the hope of the gospel. That is our blessed hope. Well, he ends this verse by saying this gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. And again, it's very similar to what he's already said. He's just talking about the universal universality of the gospel. Paul is not saying everybody is going to be saved, but he's just saying the gospel is open to all. And why is he saying that? Because the Gnostics taught differently. No, the gospel is just for the elite few, for the ones that are in the know, just the special ones. But Paul says, no, it's offered to every creature that is under heaven. And then he says, of which I am made a minister. I'm a minister of this gospel. In fact, do you know what that's what Christ uh, told Paul on the Damascus road when he saved him? He said, I've saved you for this purpose. What? To make you a minister a minister and a witness of the things that you've heard and seen. Now, ladies, believe me, I'm a pastor's wife, 42 years now. A minister is not a glamorous position like some people think it is. Always, It's funny when uh, you hear people think that uh, there are some Christians who are some big celebrities or, you know, uh, so Christian divas or something like that. There are no elevated positions in the ministry. In fact, do you know what minister means? It means to be an attendant, to be a table waiter, to run errands. That's what Paul was. He was a table waiter, just delivered the goods. He ran errands. He was a servant. Paul was not ignorant about his position, as many ministers are today. In fact, do you know Paul calls himself the least of the apostles and the chief of sinners? He didn't think himself to be something. Paul did not have a puffed up view of himself. He saw himself as a table waiter for Christ 
the one who reconciled his soul. So how are we reconciled? We are reconciled through the blood of the cross and through the death of Christ. Have you been redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Secondly, who's been reconciled? Those who were once alienated from Christ, those who were once enemies of the Lord and involved in all kinds of wickedness. What was your life like before Christ? What wickedness were you engrossed in? Have you thanked God that he brought you from being rotten to being reconciled? Thirdly, why are we reconciled? Well, we are reconciled so that we might be holy, blameless, and above reproach. Yes, to be clear, we stand before God and we're seen that way now because of Christ. But ladies, we are also to be striving for these qualities of holiness, being blameless and above reproach. Do these three qualities describe your life as well as your pursuits in life? What is the result of being reconciled? We will be grounded, settled. We will not move away from the gospel and we will persevere to the end. Are you more and more settled in your faith as the years go by? Or have you considered following the popular crowd in our day, which are denying even the existence of God? In closing, I want to ask if you have made peace with God. Have you been reconciled to God? Do you know for sure that if you were to die tonight, would you stand before God as reconciled? Does your life manifest it by holy living and by being steadfast? Are you grounded, settled, unmovable? Ladies, if you're unsure that that change has taken place, I want to beg you, as Christ himself, we're here pleading with you, receive the love he offers, be reconciled to God. For those of you who know for certain you've been reconciled, don't ever forget this blessed work of Christ. Don't forget it. You know, John Newton died at the age of 82, and right before his death, he was heard saying this. My memory is nearly gone, but I can remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Dear friend, whatever age you are, do not ever get over the fact that you are a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much, Lord, that you have taken women like us who were once enemies, alienated in our minds by wicked works, and you have taken us and transferred us from that darkness into the kingdom of the Son that you love. And now we have peace with God because of the work of Christ on the cross through his blood. Oh, thank you, Father, for reconciling us. And I do pray that we will pay back by living lives of servants that are holy, blamable, and unreprovable in your sight as we know that you stand looking in and watching. And, Lord, I know we stand positionally righteous right now before you, but I know that we are to continually be sanctified. And so, Father, help us. Help us in those areas where we are weak and where we need strengthened. And I pray this for the Savior's sake. Amen.